Proteins act as catalysts in a way similar to that described for platinum last time. They provide a surface that facilitates the formation of a transition state complex for the reactants by bringing together the reactants, or substrates, as the reactants that bind to such a protein are called. They all off also often influence the bonds in the substrate to facilitate the formation of new bonds. They do not influence the direction of the reaction, only the rate. If you look back at the energy diagram, one cannot reverse the thermodynamic facts of life. The direction of the reaction is determined by the relative energy levels of the reactants and products in the diagram. Such biological catalysts are called enzymes. Most enzymes are proteins, and a large fraction of proteins are enzymes. But RNA, a nucleic acid, can also act as an enzyme catalyst, although so far few such reactions have been identified. The surface pocket in the enzyme, where the chemical transformation of the substrates takes place, is called the active site of the enzyme. You can see pictures of these active sites in the Purvis text. Unlike the platinum cat catalysts, which can bind many different kinds of molecules, protein surfaces can act with great specificity with respect to their substrates, being tailored to the charge, the shape, and or the hydrophobicity of the substrates. You can see Purvis chapter 6, figure 13, for example. It's the surface pocket that provides the specificity. If you remember the alanine and glycine binding protein model surfaces we discussed last time, these are simplified models of how such specificity can be achieved. For example, platinum will also catalyze the hydrogenation of a carbon-carbon double bond. It will do this for any carbon-carbon double bond, including those double bonds we first met in the description of unsaturated fatty acids making peanut butter or margarine. Whatever fat you try works. But consider an enzyme. Let's say the enzyme succinic dehydrogenase that catalyzes the hydrogenation of the unsaturated dicarboxylic acid, fumaric acid, or fumarate for short. I'm introducing a lot of new terms here. Here's the structure of fumaric acid with its two carboxyl groups and its C double bond C in the middle, four carbons altogether. Through the action of succinic dehydrogenase and the, the provision of two hydrogens, this double bond can be added to by the two hydrogens. We won't discuss where these hydrogens are coming for, from at this point, we'll get back to that subsequent lecture. The resulting hydrogenated product is called succinic acid no more double bond, but two CH2 groups in the middle of this compound. Note the enzyme name, an, an indication that enzymes do not alter the direction of the reaction. Here it is named for the reverse reaction, a dehydrogenation, which it also catalyzes. Compounds that are not substrates for this enzyme include 1-hydroxybutenoate, OH, CH, double bond, CH, COOH. It's missing the carboxyl on the left side here, OH, instead of one of the carboxyls. So unlike platinum, 
the enzyme catalyst succinic dehydrogenase will not hydrogenate the C double bond C in 1-hydroxybutanoate. Cis-fumarate, also called maleate, maleic acid, has the same structural formula. Carboxyl, CH, double bond CH, and carboxyl. But here, the hydrogens on the central carbons are cis, that is, that means, on the same side of the CC double bond. In fumarate, the hydrogens are trans, on opposite sides of the CC double bond. So although they have the same formula, the stru structural formulas as indicated here for trans fumarate and cis fumarate, actually called maleate, um, appear in space uh, quite differently. Thus, the three-dimensional structure of the small molecules, as well as the proteins, are critical. They must be the right shape to fit as fumarate will not serve as a, uh, cis-fumarate, maleate, will not serve as a substrate for succinic dehydrogenase. Unlike chemical catalysts, the enzymes are highly specific about the reactions they catalyze because they're highly specific about the substrates that they bind and can bind. The following diagram shows what's happening during this catalysis. The two substrates bind, in this case, hydrogens and fumarate, and then come together in a new way to form this red product. So the substrates, or reactants, get converted to a product which is then released by the enzyme surface. In summary, enzymes bind substrates with great specificity, and they lower the activation energy for the chemical reaction that converts these substrates into products thus greatly speeding up these reactions. It's the three-dimensional shape of the pockets, usually at the surface of the proteins, that provides this specificity. The text gives several examples of how specific enzymes act as catalysts. So enzymes are catalysts, and catalysts speed up chemical reactions. To characterize the function of enzymes as catalysts, to analyze this speeding up in more detail, let's now consider the rate of chemical reactions, or chemical kinetics, in more quantitative terms. For the general reaction of substrate going to product, or S goes to P, the velocity of the reaction is the appearance of product per unit time, or the change in concentration of the product per unit time. Or V, the velocity, is equal to delta P over delta T, or dP dt. And if V equals dP dt, then V must also equal minus dS dt, or the rate of dis disappearance of the substrate per unit time. Now, from the laws of mass action, V, the velocity, is equal to some constant K1 times the concentration of substrate minus K2 times the concentration of product, which is driving the back reaction of product back into substrate. So V equals K1S minus K2P. That is, the rate of the forward reaction is proportional to the concentration of substrate, and the rate of the back reaction is proportional to the concentration of product. And the net rate forward is the algebraic sum of these two processes. The rate constants, the Ks, are here by definition. 
To simplify the situation and to simulate a common laboratory case, let's consider just an initial condition with all S but no P around yet. Under these conditions, P, the concentration of P, is so small that the back reaction P going to S can be ignored. We will always only be considering this simplified case in our discussion of enzyme kinetics. So in this case, V naught, or the initial velocity of the reaction, when there's little or no P at around, V naught equals simply K1S. And if we plot that, we can get product versus time. We would get a straight line as the product accumulates over this initial time interval. Here, V naught now indicates an initial velocity before P builds up to the point where the back reaction becomes significant. I uh, should understand I may drop the naught sign and just say V, but I always mean the initial velocity in all of the following arguments. If we plot P versus T, we get a straight line as shown above. However, the rate of the reaction, which is the slope of this line, will be proportional to the first power of S. It's called a first order reaction. If we consider a series of reactions, each starting with a different amount of substrate, we would get a series of straight lines with different slopes, as shown below in the product versus time plot. Substrate concentration one, substrate concentration two, which is, looks about twice as much here, S3 or S4, increasing concentrations. Now let's consider the dependence of the initial rate of the con <coughs> on the concentration of the reactants or substrate S. So imagine a series of test tubes with different increasing concentrations of S and measure P versus T slopes for each one. If we plot that slope, which is V naught, for each different initial S, that is V naught versus S, we get, again, a straight line characteristic of a first order reaction. But notice here, the ordinate, or y-axis, is V naught, and the abscissa, or x-axis, is the substrate concentration. So as we increase the substrate concentration, the initial velocity increases proportionally. This was the reaction rate with the pure chemicals. Now let's repeat the experiment, but add a pinch of enzyme that catalyzes this reaction. Same amount to each test tube. First of all, the rate is greatly increased. So if we look, consider a P versus T plot of the accumulation of product. In the presence of enzyme, if we had reasonable slope like this 45 degree line here, then the rate of the reaction in the absence of enzyme would be much, much less, so much less that we can uh, ignore it. That is, the difference is so great, we can ignore the uncatalyzed chemical reaction as being insignificant compared to the enzyme catalyzed reaction. Now let's once again plot V naught versus S with different substrate concentrations. The plot looks now a little different. For the enzyme-catalyzed reaction, V naught versus S goes up linearly for a while, but then levels off. We can talk about two parts to this curve. The beginning at low S, con concentration of substrate, where V, or V naught, is proportional to S, the reaction being first order. And at the end, where V is independent of S, the reaction being zero order. That is, velocity is not changing anymore as you increase the substrate concentration. Michaelis and Menton formulated this situation mathematically in 1913 
with some simplifying assumptions that turn out to be okay for most cases. The first assumption is that an enzyme-catalyzed reaction proceeds through an intermediate called the enzyme-substrate complex, as follows. First, enzyme, E, in the diagram below here, and substrate, S, interact to form an enzyme-substrate complex, ES. Second, this ES complex either dissociates back to E and S, or the substrate undergoes a transformation to the product P, which then dissociates from the complex. Each step is characterized by a first-order rate constant, called K1 through K4. The numbering is important here to allow us to talk about these individual steps. So as you see here, K1 is defined here as the rate constant for the formation of the ES complex, and K2 for its disassembly. K3 is the reaction for the disassembly of ES into enzyme plus product, and K4 the association of product and enzyme to form would be the enzyme product or enzyme substrate complex, an enzyme complex with a small molecule either in substrate or product form. This model can explain the observed way in which the velocity of an enzyme-catalyzed reaction depends on the substrate concentration. Now, redrawing that curve from last time, we have this straight part followed by the curve. With three assumptions, we can derive an equation that relates the velocity to the substrate concentration for an enzyme-catalyzed reaction, which is called the Michaelis-Menten equation. Assumption one is that E plus S goes to ES. This is how enzymes work via a complex, which I just mentioned. Assumption two is that reaction four is actually negligible under these conditions, since we are considering initial velocities. And product is not building up to a point where it significantly affects the result. Assumption three is that the enzyme-substrate complex is in a steady state with its concentration unchanged with time during this period of initial rates. Steady state is not an equilibrium condition. It means that the compound is being destroyed at the same rate as it's being formed so that its concentration remains constant. That is, the enzyme-substrate complex is being formed by reaction K1 as fast as it is being disassembled by reactions K2 and K3. So its concentration, concentration of ES, is not changing. It quickly reaches this steady state by the laws of mass action. See a handout on enzyme kinetics to follow the mathematical consequences of this assumption, which I'm not going to take time to go into here. The enzyme kinetics handout shows, then, how by applying the chemical kinetic principle of rate constants and straightforward algebra, you get the following formula relating the initial velocity of an enzyme-catalyzed reaction to the substrate concentration. V0, initial velocity, equals K3 E0 S divided by a term of rate constants, K2 plus K3 divided by K1 plus the substrate concentration. Here, E0 is the initial, or total, enzyme concentration, and S, with or without the brackets, is the substrate concentration, assuming here the simple case of one substrate. 
we can simplify this equation by substituting one constant, k sub m, or km, called the Michaelis constant, for the group of three rate constants in the denominator. So v naught equals k3 times e naught times s divided by km plus s, where km is defined here as k2 plus k3 over k1. Here again, e naught's the total concentration of enzyme, free and bound in the complex. Km is the Michaelis constant. S is the substrate concentration. K3 is the rate constant for the formation of P from ES, which you should verify from the diagram of the reaction mechanism. Looking at the equation, we can see, first, that the rate of the reaction is proportional to the enzyme concentration. This is reasonable, since the enzyme is the necessary catalyst and is almost always a rate-limiting factor. Two, that for a given amount of enzyme, a given amount of enzyme, S determines the rate of the reaction, all of the terms being constants. Three, now at low S, low, that is how low? Low compared to Km. Where S is much less than Km, the denominator approaches Km, and the rate is simply proportional to S as is observed in our graph of V0 versus S for an enzyme-catalyzed reaction. At low S, it's a straight line. Fourth, on the other hand, at high S, that is, when S is much greater than Km, the denominator approaches S, if S is much greater than Km. And so the S's cancel out from the numerator and the denominator, so the rate is independent of S, V being simply K3E0, also fitting the observed shape of the experimental curve. Now let's bring these constants, Km and K3, to life. They have some particular significance for describing an enzyme. Let's review for a minute just what an enzyme does. One, it catalyzes the chemical transformation of substrate into product helping to break targeted covalent bonds in the substrate. Two, it displays exquisite specificity in doing so, being able to bind one substrate, but not another very related structure. The constants that reside in the Michaelis-Menten equation relate to these two properties of enzymes as follows. Consider K3. At high S, V approaches a maximum for a given amount of enzyme called Vmax, as you can see in the diagram below. It's just a plateau level for V0 when it's no longer responding to the addition of additional substrate. So Vmax is equal to K3E0, the rate, initial rate, of the reaction at high substrate concentrations. When Vmax is reached, all the enzyme E exists as ES. It is saturated. It is turning S into P, substrate into product, as fast as it can. Now we can once again rewrite the Michaelis-Menten equation in an even more simplified form. V equals Vmax, that is K3E0, substituting for K3E0. V equals Vmax times the substrate concentration divided by Km plus the substrate concentration. This is a practical form because Km and Vmax, it turns out, can be easily measured which is not so easy for example E0 and K3.
we can also see that k3 is equal to v max over e naught. Just rearranging the terms. k3 then is the maximum dp dt, formation of product per unit time, divided by e naught, or the maximum minus the SDT, disappearance of substrate, divided by the amount of enzyme. That is, it's equal to the maximum number of moles of substrate converted to product per mole of enzyme per second, or the maximum number of molecules of substrate converted to product per molecule of enzyme per second. That's easier to visualize. It's also called, for this reason, the turnover number of the enzyme and it's a measure of the enzyme's catalytic power. Given that the substrate is bound, the turnover number is a measure of how good the enzyme is at facilitating the chemical reaction. Turnover numbers vary widely for different enzymes. Our succinic dehydrogenase example, that enzyme has a turnover number of 19, 19 per second. So it takes about a 20th of a second to achieve the reduction of that double bond in fumarate. That's fairly slow. Many enzymes have turnover numbers in the hundreds or thousands. The highest known is for carbonic anhydrase. This enzyme catalyzes the reaction. Carbon dioxide plus water goes to carbonic acid, H2CO3. The turnover number for carbonic anhydrase is 600,000 per second. That's 600,000 molecules of carbonic acid produced by one molecule of enzyme in one second, a speed that's hard to imagine. What about KM? There are several ways to look at KM. There's a practical way. KM is the concentration of substrate that produces a half maximal velocity. Just plug this V, this half maximal velocity, V equals V max, the maximum velocity, divided by 2. Plug that into the Michaelis-Menten equation and then solve for the substrate concentration that would give this V max over 2. One gets that substrate concentration is equal numerically to Km. That just falls out of the algebra. Note that as suggested by this equivalence, Km does have the units of concentration or molarity. Graphically, if we plot V0 versus S again and look across at the place on the y-axis where V0 equals one-half Vmax, halfway up to the maximum, and then read down to the abscissa, we can read the Km right from the graph. Right we can read the substrate concentration that results in one-half the maximum velocity. Our original definition of Km algebraically was K2 plus K3 over K1. And this provides a way to look at Km that gives us an insight into the effectiveness of an enzyme. However, it requires a simplifying assumption. Very often, but not always, K2 and K1, representing the association and dissociation, respectively, of E and S, are much faster than K3, so that K3 is the slow limiting step in the sequence of reactions. Since Km equals K2 plus K3 over K1, then if K3 is much less than K2, 
Km in this case would be approximately equal to just K2 over K1. That is, we're ignoring K3 as being small compared to K2. Now, K2 over K1 is just the equilibrium constant for the reaction Es goes to E plus S. Let's review chemical equilibria just for a few seconds. If we have a reaction, A plus B goes to C plus D, and it's going forward with a rate constant of K1, and it's going backward with a rate constant of K2, then the equilibrium constant of this reaction, K equilibrium, is equal to the concentration of C at equilibrium, one of the products, times the concentration of D at equilibrium, another product, divided by the concentration of A at equilibrium times the concentration of B at equilibrium, the reactants. And this equilibrium constant is also equal to K1 over K2. This follows from the way K1 and K2 are defined for the production of one of the products, say here, dc dt. dc, the formation of C with respect to time, is going to be equal to K1 times the contributions of A and B, which are needed to form C, minus K2, the back reactions, that is, getting rid of C, K2 times the concentrations of C plus D. At equilibrium, this change in concentration per unit time is, by definition, equal to zero. There's no, there is no net change of any components at equilibrium. So at equilibrium, K1 times the concentration of A at equilibrium times the concentration of B at equilibrium is equal to the concentration uh, K2 times the concentration of C at equilibrium, the concentration of D at equilibrium. And so arranging the terms C times D divided by A times B, all at equilibrium, is equal to K1 over K2, which is also equal to the equilibrium constant, which is, we, we said, defined as C times D divided by A times B at equilibrium. So the equilibrium constant is just the ratio of the forward rate constant divided by K1 divided by the rate constant for the reverse reaction K2. We can choose to write the dissociation reaction for the ES complex, returning to our enzyme, into free E and free S from left to right instead of from the right-to-left way written for the conversion of substrate into product. So we consider the reaction ES goes to E plus S instead of vice versa. Then we have K2 on top going towards E and S, and K1 on the bottom going towards ES. In this circumstances, then, Km is approximately equal to K2 over K1. It's approximately equal to, therefore, the dissociation constant, Kd, of the ES complex, that is, the equilibrium constant for the dissociation reaction, also known as the dissociation constant. Compare the association constant, Ka, would be K1 over K2, just the inverse, or 1 over Km. So the higher the Km, which is K2 over K1, the more readily the enzyme substrate complex will come apart, will dissociate. The higher the Km, the poorer is the ability of the enzyme to hold onto its substrate, to bind it, and vice versa. The lower the Km, 
the lower is the tendency to dissociation. That is, the tighter is the ability of the enzyme to hold on to its substrate and thus bind its substrate. This fits with the graphical picture also. The higher the Km, the more S you have to add to get the enzyme to go, even at one-half the Vmax. Typical KMs are 10 to the minus 3 to 10 to the minus 6 molar. Some are even better than 10 to the minus 6 molar. Although binding can be very efficient, there are limitations. Uh, 10 to the minus 12 molar will generally not work. And remember, the enzyme here is acting as a catalyst that can be used over and over and over. So usually the enzyme concentrations are much lower than the substrate concentrations, even at substrate concentrations well below the KM. Let me summarize these points about enzymes. Enzymes increase the rate of spontaneous reactions, not changing their direction. They do this by their ability to bind specific substrates to form transition state complexes. Vmax is related to the turnover number, which is molecules of substrate converted to product per enzyme molecule per second. Km is related to the ability of the enzyme to bind its substrate. A higher Km means poorer binding. The catalytic ability of an enzyme can be characterized by these two parameters, the turnover number and the Km. Virtually every chemical reaction in the cell is catalyzed by an enzyme. The, enzymes, the enzyme binds its substrates with great specificity and it usually aids in the chemical reaction that's taking place. However, the enzyme itself emerged, emerges unchanged. What's the function of these enzymes in the cell? The enzymes are central to the whole problem of building two new E. coli cells from one old one. Remember the flow of glucose carbon atoms into the 50 different small molecules, which go on to form the 5,000 different macromolecules? Each arrow in those biosynthetic pathways represents an enzyme, a particular protein with a particular amino acid sequence, with a particular three-dimensional structure which can bind and catalyze the chemical transformation of particular substrates into particular products, and having particular KMs and turnover numbers. Now let's continue the discussion of enzymes by considering the modulation of enzyme activity through three types of inhibition of an enzyme's catalytic activity. We could also consider the stimulation of enzyme activity, but we're going to concentrate on inhibition in the context of, um, of this course. The three types of inhibitors I want to discuss are competitive, which are illustrating the action of drugs, non-competitive, which I'll illustrate by the action of some poisons, and allosteric, which are characteristic of natural feedback regulators. A competitive inhibitor is a molecule that competes with the natural substrate for the substrate binding site of the enzyme. In the presence of a competitive inhibitor, we have uh, in the diagram below, uh, you see these triangular shapes can fit into the substrate binding site of the enzyme, and both the inhibitor and the substrate have such a, a point that can fit in here, indicating that uh, the inhibitor can bind uh, as well as the substrate, perhaps less well, perhaps even more tightly than the substrate. That depends on the inhibitor.
in this diagram, I've pictured the inhibitor as being uh, at a lower concentration, a substrate concentration. At a low substrate concentration, you may get good effective inhibition as long as the substrate concentration is low. But at high substrate concentration, the competitive inhibitor will eventually be swamped out. Let's look at this situation in our V0 versus S plot. For a given concentration of inhibitor, adding more and more S will eventually bring you back to Vmax as the inhibitor is swamped out. So you can see this lower line here is in the presence of the inhibitor, and the upper line is in the absence of an inhibitor. So at any given point, and this is a um, V0 versus S, as most of our curves have been. So the velocity is on the y-axis, and the substrate concentration is on the uh, x-axis. So at each one of these points of certain substrate concentrations, the velocity of the reaction in the presence of the inhibitor is less. You can see at low substrate concentration, it's quite a bit less. Then you get out to higher and higher substrate concentrations, it's less and less less, until eventually you can see this would extrapolate to the same Vmax. So the Vmax doesn't seem to change here. However, if we would measure if we would take our measurement of Km, as we usually do say as to get a number from these experiments, and go to one-half the maximum velocity and read across to the, uh, the curve, which is in the presence of the inhibitor, and read down, we now get a Km which is sort of falsely high compared to the real Km. The apparent Km in the presence of the inhibitor will be increased. That's reflecting the difficulty the substrate's having in getting bound to the enzyme in the presence of this inhibitor. It follows that since the competitive inhibitor must bind to the same site as the substrate, it should have a structure very similar to the substrate. Why is competitive inhibition important? Because since we know the structure of the substrate, we, with the help of organic chemists, can design and synthesize candidate organic molecules as specific enzyme inhibitors, which can be useful in medicine. For example, this morning, as every morning, I took 100 milligrams of a drug allopurinol, which has the two-ring structure, two structure seen on the, on the handout. I took it because my uric acid, you can see the uric acid structure on the handout as well, my uric acid levels are too high. Uric acid is not very soluble, so if, you, <coughs> if the concentration in the blood is too high, it can precipitate and settle, collecting in capillaries of your feet, and then you have gout, which is a very painful condition, or it can precipitate in the urine as it's excreted, thus the name uric acid leading to kidney stones. Uric acids produced by the action of the enzyme xanthine oxidase that catalyzes the reaction hypoxanthine, which we get from nucleic acids we eat, going to uric acid, which is excreted. For some unknown reason, this enzyme becomes overactive in some people, so they produce, they'll overproduce uric acid. The allopurinol can bind to the xanthine oxidase, but it cannot be oxidized. Note the differences in the five-membered ring and where the hydroxyls are introduced. The binding of allopurinol prevents the binding of the true substrate. So competitive inhibitors are important for pharmaceutical applications. For example, many of the anti-AHV drugs, 
like uh, AZT and DDC, are competitive inhibitors of the enzymes that polymerize the viral nucleic acid. And they're important to the biochemist, as she or he can use various analogs of the true substrate to probe the nature of the active site, to determine just what groups on the substrate are being recognized in the active site. Now let's consider another kind of inhib inhibition caused by a non-competitive inhibitor. Chemical compound need not always look like the substrate in order to act as an inhibitor. A non-competitive inhibitor can bind to a site other than the substrate binding site and inhibit activity. These inhibitors usually interfere with the catalytic reaction itself, the formation, the formation of a transition state complex on the surface, so that the substrate still binds to the enzyme, but then the enzyme can't do anything with it. For instance, see uh, in your Purvis text, figure 619C. Take mercury, for example. Unlike allopurinol, it's a poison rather than a therapeutic agent, mercury can bind to free sulfhydryl groups, which in proteins means the side chain of cysteine. Sulfhydryls often take part in the catalytic process, but if mercury is bound to the sulfhydryl, it may not be able to do its job. In this case, adding an excess of substrate will not reverse the action of the inhibitor. The Vmax of the reaction will be affected, but not the Km. As we can see in this graph, how a non-competitive inhibitor affects the measurement of enzyme kinetics. We can see that at a given concentration of inhibitor, we get a lower Vmax. And the higher the concentration of the non-competitive inhibitor, the lower is the achievable Vmax. How can we envision this? Think of a beaker of enzyme. If we add an excess of non-competitive inhibitor, we cannot measure any activity. So we cannot investigate any effect. So let's add a subsaturating amount of non-competitive inhibitor. Given moment, a constant proportion of the enzyme molecules will be taken out of action because they are binding the non-competitive inhibitor. Let's say two-thirds are inactive at any moment in this particular beaker, but in a dynamic equilibrium. That is, those gray enzyme molecules that are bound to the red non-competitive inhibitor, four of them out of these six are taken out of action whereas two are able to bind substrate that don't have the red non-competitive inhibitor bound. That is, the remaining one-third are okay and act perfectly normally with respect to their dependence on S. It is they that contribute to the V that's being measured on the graph. So the Km measurement is not affected. This uninhibited fraction of the enzyme population gets to one-half of the new lower Vmax that can be attained at the usual concentration of substrate. But the Vmax they attain will only be one-third of that reached in the absence of the non-competitive inhibitor. So here, the apparent Vmax is lowered, and the Km is unaffected, just the opposite of what we saw with a competitive inhibitor. The third type of inhibitor we'll consider is called an allosteric inhibitor. This is the most important natural enzyme inhibition living cells use enzyme inhibitors to regulate the activity of many enzymes. This kind of inhibition is similar to non-competitive inhibition in that the inhibitor binds to a site different from the substrate binding site. In this case, it binds to its very own special site, remote from the substrate binding site, 
and acts by deforming the enzyme so that it either can no longer bind its substrate or it cannot catalyze its reaction. Enzymes that are regulated by allosteric inhibition are usually heteromultimers composed of regulatory subunits and catalytic subunits. The allosteric inhibitor binds to the regulatory subunits in a reversible manner, changing their conformation. The catalytic site on another su subunit is turned on or off depending on the conformation of the regulatory subunits. The quantitative treatment of this inhibition is beyond our scope here, but see your Purvis text, figure 621, for a picture. So allosteric inhibitors, which is the black ball here in the diagram above, can affect the apparent KM, the apparent Vmax, or both. How does the cell use this allosteric inhibition? The most obvious roles in the E. coli cell are for those enzymes that catalyze the reactions of a biosynthetic pathway. E. coli growing on glucose as the only source of carbon must synthesize all of its small molecules by a series of chemical reactions that emanate from glucose. In general, glucose is first broken down from its six carbon state to smaller molecules of three, two, or one carbons and then these smaller molecules are then used to build all the necessary monomers and cofactors in the cell. All the monomers, the 20 amino acids, the prosthetic groups like heme, virtually every molecule in the cell has a pathway that can be traced back to glucose. These pathways do not simply run at equal and constant rates, but rather are tightly controlled and coordinated. Much of this coordination is brought about by the cell's judicious use of allosteric inhibition. The very molecules that are being synthesized, the end products of the pathway, are often used as the mediators of this inhibition. They are the allosteric inhibitors, as we'll see in a moment. A pathway traced back from an end product to glucose can usually be divided into two parts. The breakdown part, called catabolism, and then the buildup part, called anabolism, or catabolic pathways versus anabolic pathways. The anabolic pathways are more often called biosynthetic pathways or biosynthesis. So glucose goes to A to B to C to D to E, then there may be a branch where E can go to F and G, which may be an end product, or E can go down to H, which goes to I, and A, there may be another branch there for I to go to J or down to KLMN. Each arrow in the diagram represents a specific chemical transformation, such as the reduction of fumarate by succinic dehydrogenase, or the oxidation of hypoxanthine by xanthine oxidase. To coordinate all this activity, E. coli has evolved a sophisticated and sensible way of controlling the flow of glucose carbons through its biosynthetic pathways. This is called end product inhibition and usually works by having the end product of biosynthetic pathway act as an allosteric inhibitor of the first step in the pathway that's committed to the biosynthesis of that molecule. For example, G for reaction 5, N for reaction 10 in the diagram above. So you see, the first committed step for G is reaction 5. The first committed step for reaction leading to N is reaction 10. If you go back to reaction 8, 
then it's not committed solely to react to end product n, but it could also go to j. Or if we consider reaction one, it could go to g, j, or n. So the uh, end product inhibition usually almost always functions uh, just for the branch that represents uh, a unique pathway to one end product. So these pathways have evolved, and these enzymes have evolved, such that the first enzyme in a pathway has built in to its structure a site for the ultimate end product of the pathway it is starting. Since the end products are usually many steps down the road of chemical transformations, it does not bear much resemblance to the substrate or the product of the reaction it's inhibiting. You can look at Purvis figure 622. For example, a specific example, the pathway to the amino acid isoleucine can be considered to start as a branch after the synthesis of the amino acid threonine. Glucose goes in several steps to threonine. Then there's the enzyme threonine deaminase, which converts threonine to alpha-ketobutyric acid, which then grows through a few more intermediates before you reach isoleucine and no other amino acid. Isoleucine turns out to be an allosteric inhibitor of the enzyme threonine deaminase. In this way, the pathway to isoleucine is shut off when enough isoleucine is present. The cell has feedback information about the amount of end product it's synthesizing. This mechanism of feedback inhibition, or end product inhibition, is used extensively in E. coli to avoid the waste of running a pathway when it's not needed. Does this mean that E. coli could divide a bit faster if we gave it isoleucine in addition to glucose in otherwise minimal medium? Could it shave its doubling time from 60 minutes down to, say, 55 minutes by shutting off that path? While we're at it, why not add all 20 amino acids and a few vitamins and some fatty acids and some DNA and RNA precursors? Now would E. coli grow any faster? Indeed they do. In such a rich medium, they will double every 20 minutes instead of once an hour. A whole new E. coli cell in 20 minutes. Now, feedback inhibition is not the only reason for this increased efficiency, but it's playing a large part. And you can imagine that this ability to shut off and turn on biosynthetic pathways fits the lifestyle of E. coli as it sits there in your intestines waiting for the next Big Mac. The more efficient doublers will soon take over the population, so there probably has been great selective pressure for the evolution of these control mechanisms that respond to the environment in this way. One can see why you need allosteric, which means literally different in space, inhibition mentioned above for the feedback regulation of this biosynthetic pathways. Note that the inhibitor isoleucine bears little resemblance to the substrate, threonine, for the reaction it inhibits. Isoleucine binds not to the catalytic site or active site, but to an allosteric site, a special regulatory site that's remote from the catalytic site. Indeed, in the regulatory site, is in this case, it's located on a separate polypeptide in 3-anine which is a protein with quaternary structure.